make yourselves comfortable while I get set up here. Thank you guys. Welcome to everybody online and welcome to everybody that's here. My name is Mike and I'm going to um, talk today not about the book of Acts but about things I've been thinking about and as I thought about this talk I started writing ideas down and it turned into a conversation between me and an imaginary person who's asking questions about why follow Jesus. And then as it developed, it turned into questions about what kind of problems someone who decides to follow Jesus starts to encounter. I mean, if it was perfectly obvious that everyone should follow Jesus, why isn't everyone already following Jesus. So there's problems. And then I wanted to think about, well, how do you live in light of the fact, if you've decided to follow Jesus and you're encountering these problems, what do you do? How do you carry out your life? So, why follow Jesus? What problems are involved? And then how to live following Jesus. So first of all, I would probably say you should follow Jesus because his earliest followers claimed that he is the eternal transcendent creator, God, who made the universe and everything in it. And he actually used the name that God gave to Moses, God's own name, to refer to himself, Yahweh. So God, our creator, I tell my friend, was born and lived as a human being just like you and me, in a place that anyone can visit today. In other words, Jesus is a real person. It's kind of outrageous, right? And usually they end up in psychiatric hospitals or living on the street or doing themselves great harm or harm to the people who follow them. But Jesus was different. For one thing, he was an incredibly clear-thinking person. When some of his enemies claimed that he was crazy or possessed by the devil, he refuted them with perfect logic. And I would tell my friend that in addition to claiming to be our creator, Jesus was the smartest and most capable person who has ever lived. He knew how to suspend gravity and walk on water. He knew how to change the chemical composition of different substances. He changed water into wine. Twice, he took a couple fish and some loaves of bread and increased their actual physical substance to feed between 15 and 20,000 people. He knew how to dramatically change people's bodies just by talking to them or touching them. He made people who were blind able to see, people who were deaf able to hear, people who were paralyzed able to stand up and walk and even dance for joy. He knew what other people were thinking about him, and sometimes he told them so. He knew how to control the weather. Finally, he told his followers ahead of time that he was going to be executed and then come back from death to life, and in doing so, demonstrate that he is the one who has power and authority over life and death in the whole universe 
and he did it. So, Jesus not only claimed to be the creator of the universe, he demonstrated his knowledge of and ability to control the physical, chemical, biochemical processes of nature. The great writer C.S. Lewis argued regarding Jesus' claim to be God, our creator, a man who makes the kind of claims Jesus made about himself would be either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord that he claimed to be, from his book, Mere Christianity. So I'd say to my friend who's talking to me about Jesus, look, Jesus claimed to be God. He demonstrated that he has absolute knowledge about how the universe works and the ability to have it do what he wants. And this is important. Jesus didn't use his authority and power to benefit himself. He went around preaching the good news about the kingdom of God that is now available to everyone and helping all different kinds of people who needed help. So therefore, he wasn't a lunatic, he wasn't a liar, and we should seriously consider the fact that God became a human being and lived among us at a specific place and time in history, and we really ought to find out what he taught us. Now, at this point, my friend might say something like, well, you know, come on, we can't trust the Bible. I mean, it's old, right? Or science has disproved that God exists. And, you know, those are real conversations, and we might have to have those. Those are important conversations. But let's, for the sake of this conversation, let's just assume that my friend accepts that maybe the New Testament is reliable as history, and that science has in no way proved that God doesn't exist. So my friend says, now, you say Jesus went around preaching the kingdom of God. What does that mean? And I say, that's a really good question. What is the kingdom of God? Well, let's first note that it's a very Jewish idea, the kingdom of God. But consider the word kingdom. What does kingdom mean? It could refer to a place. But the way Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the word kingdom refers to the effective range of the king's will, or, in other words, the kingdom of God is where whatever God, who is the king of the universe, once done, is done. Wherever God wants it done, it's done. That's God's kingdom. So God wants the universe to exist, therefore it exists. God wants the earth to be filled with plants and animals, and so it does, and on and on like that. But suppose then, my friend says, Okay, I see what you mean about the kingdom of God being the effective range of God's will, but you also said that this kingdom is available to everyone and anyone. What do you mean by that? And I would answer by saying, well, Jesus said to seriously consider the fact that the kingdom of God is an actual reality that is here now, even though you can't see it. I mean, you can't see gravity, but gravity exists, right? And Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is the most 
important reality that exists now. More important and more significant than money or power or health or beauty or fame or any of the other stuff that we human beings love. And he said that anyone who genuinely acknowledges him as the king, Jesus is the king, and makes a commitment to follow him and learn to obey him, will begin living Jesus' kingdom kind of life right now. So my friend says, wait a minute, what does living Jesus' kingdom kind of life mean? And I would answer, well, it means receiving a new kind of life right now through the Holy Spirit. He says, what's the Holy Spirit? And I say, that means you get to begin a new relationship with God. And it turns out that God, being our creator, absolutely loves us and wants to help us develop into people who are like Jesus. By that, I mean that God wants to help us become people who can be able to safely receive the kind of power that Jesus has so that we can be involved in ruling the universe with him forever. And my friend says, wow, okay, that's pretty interesting if it's true. But wait a second. You said the kingdom of God is wherever what God wants done is done. And you said that the kingdom of God is available to everyone now. But come on. I mean, look at the world. Sure, there's lots of good stuff. But there's a lot of pretty bad stuff in the world, too. I mean, what about wars and disease and people cheating and lying and stealing? If the kingdom of God is here now, and if, as you say, God's kingdom is where whatever God wants done is done, then it seems like God must want a lot of bad stuff to happen. And if that's the way God is, how can you say that God is good? Or maybe God is good, he says, but not powerful enough to stop the bad stuff from happening. Either way, I'm not sure this is such good news after all. Now, at this point in our conversation, I have to tell my, my friend about the problems that people encounter when they acknowledge Jesus as king and make a commitment to following him and learning to obey him. I tell my friend, you know, many people aren't aware of this, but we're living in the middle of a war. He says, you mean that thing going on with Russia? And I say, no, 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 no. That's a symptom of a much larger war, a cosmic war. And this cosmic war has been going on since before human beings were created. You see, God has created other kinds of beings that are very intelligent and very powerful. They're called angels, and they have existed longer than human beings have. Most of them are good, and they help God run the universe. But unfortunately, some of them have rebelled against God, and they're trying to destroy God's creation. Now, my friend says, well, why didn't God just get rid of them? Wouldn't that solve the problem? And I answer, actually, no. You see, like human beings, God created angels with the freedom to choose to obey him or not. My friend says, why did you do that? And I answer, well, God wants all the beings he has made to love him, just like God loves them. 
God is love. But for some of God's creatures, in order to truly love him, they have to have the freedom to choose to love him or not. God gave angels and human beings the freedom to choose to love God and obey him or not. You see, God won't force these creatures to love him. They've been given the dignity to choose. If God forced angels and human beings to love him and obey him, we'd be like the rest of the animals and even the plants. We wouldn't have a mind of our own. We would obey God and love God like the way a cow does, or a bear, or an oak tree. It would be automatic. But God made the angels and us human beings to be like God in the sense that we can freely choose to love God or not. God will not force us to love him and learn to obey him. But what he has done is demonstrate that he loves us and wants us to love him. My friend asks, how has he demonstrated that he loves us? And I answer, well, look around. I mean, he's given us life and everything we need to exist. You know, we take all this stuff for granted, as if somehow we created ourselves. But in fact, everything we are and everything we have has been given to us as a gift. He says, okay, but let's go back to this cosmic war you mentioned. Say more about that. And I answer, well, it turns out that while God's kingdom is here now and available to everyone, God has allowed other kingdoms to exist for a time as well. And some of these kingdoms are in conflict with God's kingdom. That's the cosmic war we're in. The way this cosmic war is actually happening here on earth is that God has allowed some of these powerful angels who have turned against God to exercise their will, their kingdom, here on this earth for a while. The Bible talks about these beings as Satan or the devil. One of his earliest writers wrote in a letter, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And another early follower wrote, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These spiritual beings are powerful and extremely intelligent. And they concentrate on convincing human beings to believe that either God does not exist, or if he does exist, he does not have our best interest at heart. In other words, they try to convince us we can't trust God. And I would tell my friend, and it's not just that God has allowed these other kingdoms of these evil spiritual beings, you know, in, to be in conflict with God's kingdom, but each of us human beings has a kingdom, our own kingdom. In other words, we're able to exercise our effective will within a certain range. What I mean is each one of us is able to choose to believe and do what we want to do believe and do. That's our kingdom, our life. And so 
Unfortunately, because we're constantly being influenced by these powerful, evil spiritual forces, often our kingdoms, our lives, are in conflict with God's kingdom. So you can see that with all these kingdoms and conflicts, the world is a pretty messy place right now. But it's important to understand that God wants us to have our own kingdom because he wants us to be free persons. However, by entering the kingdom of God, we can learn how to bring our personal kingdom, our lives, into congruence or into agreement with God's kingdom. And the absolutely amazing thing is that when, we, when, our, when our life comes under the authority of God's kingdom, we can learn to live a life free from fear. And my friend says, free from fear of what? And I reply, well, free from fear of death. Free from fear of what other people think about us. Free from fear of loneliness or not having enough. And not only that, in God's kingdom, we can learn to live with joy, no matter what our current circumstances are. And my friend says, huh, I never thought about it that way. I guess I have to give it a little bit more thought. But let me ask you another question, he says. I admit you've made a decent argument that following Jesus might be a good idea. Suppose that I think maybe it's true that Jesus is the king of the universe. You talked about making a commitment to follow him. Do I have to be 100% sure of all this stuff first? And I'd say, no, it's impossible to be 100% sure. You have to start wherever you are. One of my favorite parts of the Gospels, those are four historical biographies about Jesus written by the people who knew him best, is where some of Jesus' followers are trying to drive an evil spirit out of this boy, and they can't do it, even though he's given them power. So the, the, boy, the boy's father sees Jesus, and he goes over to him. He says, teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a demon that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your followers to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can... Jesus says, probably with a big smile. Everything is possible for someone who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus drove out the demon and the boy was well. The point is, Jesus will accept you wherever you are and with whatever state of knowledge and belief you have. My friend says, okay. Suppose after careful consideration, I make a commitment to follow him. You said I had to learn to obey him. What do you mean by that? And I would answer, well, Jesus constantly talked about listening. He was focused on the way we pay attention to the things he taught. Jesus usually taught in parables, which are short stories using something that we already understand to teach us about something we don't understand. 
So in one of his first parables about the kingdom of God, he talks about a farmer who goes out to plant grain in his fields. In those days, after the, the fields were plowed, the farmer would scatter the grain by hand like this, right? So in the parable, as the farmer is scattering the grain, Jesus says that some of the seed lands on pathways where people walk, and some lands on soil that's pretty thin and kind of rocky, and some of the seed lands in an area where there's thorn bushes, and then the seed, there's lots of seed that lands in, in the good soil that's been plowed. And then Jesus says that the seeds that land on the pathways where the ground is hard are just eaten up by the birds immediately. And the, the seeds that land in the thin, rocky soil, they start to grow, but they don't have a root, so they die. And the, the seeds that land among the thorn bushes start to grow, but the thorn bushes choke them, and then they die. However, the seeds that land in the good soil take root and grow and yield a good crop. Now, it's important to notice that when Jesus tells this parable, he starts it and ends it by saying, Listen, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And later on, when his followers ask him about the meaning of the parable, he explains that the parable is about the way people listen and hear, or listen and not hear, his message about the kingdom of God. In the parable, the seed stands for the message about the kingdom of God. And the seed that lands on the pathway where the ground is hard is like people who hear the message, but the devil comes and takes it away, and they don't yield any fruit. The seed that lands in the thin, rocky soil are like people who hear the message about the kingdom of God, and they initially receive it with joy. But because they're not rooted, it dies away. And the seed that lands among the thorn bushes are like people who hear the message about the kingdom of God. But the cares of this world, Worrying about money and pleasure and all the stuff that occupies us all the time. It chokes out the message. And the, the seed dies. But the seed that lands in the good soil are like people who hear the message about the kingdom of God. And they take it seriously. And they enter it and they learn how to obey Jesus. And they bear much fruit. Which means... They become more and more like Jesus. My friend says, you keep talking about learning to obey Jesus. So are you saying I have to learn to obey Jesus in order to enter the kingdom of God? And I answer, no. You enter the kingdom of God simply by saying yes to Jesus. You enter by faith or trust. And that faith is actually a gift that God gives you. Once you say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the king and I want to follow you, assuming, of course, that you're as sincere as you can be, you have entered the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit is now working in your life. My friend says, what's, what's this thing about learning to obey Jesus then if all it takes is faith? And I respond, well, Jesus told his first disciples, or another word is students, 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make students of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. We begin, I would tell him, learning how to obey Jesus, not in order to enter the kingdom of God, but because by trusting Jesus as king, we've already entered the kingdom of God. This is really important. If we don't get the order right, we can run into some real problems. I'll say it again. We don't learn to obey Jesus in order to enter the kingdom of God. If we think about obeying Jesus that way, we become on outward religious practices because we think God won't accept us into his kingdom unless we do whatever we think it is he requires us to do. But that is not what obeying Jesus is all about. One of Jesus' earliest followers was a brilliant man who came from a very legalistic religious background. He didn't follow Jesus while Jesus was here in his earthly body. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, after he died and was resurrected, this man became a fierce persecutor of the early followers of Jesus, putting them in jail, even having some of them killed. However, this guy met the risen Lord Jesus in real life and turned his, upside, his life upside down. And Jesus gave him the job of taking the Jewish message about the kingdom of God to the non-Jewish or Gentile world. And he spent his life traveling and, and starting little communities of communities of Jesus students called churches throughout the first century Mediterranean world. His name was Paul, and we have many of his letters he, that he wrote to churches in what we call the New Testament. In his letter to the churches in a city, a city called Philippi, he put the matter of obeying Jesus like this. He said, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is working in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The point is, these students of Jesus are already obeying him because they've already entered the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit is working in their lives. And Paul's encouraging them to just keep doing that. My friend says, I, I see. So give me some examples of what obeying Jesus looks like in real life. And I say, remember that parable I told you about listening. You can carefully listen to Jesus by reading the Gospels. That's a good way to start learning to obey Jesus. And as you're listening, he'll teach you something. And you start to do it. For instance, he'll teach you how to pray. And you start to pray as he taught. And the Holy Spirit is with you, teaching you how to learn to pray, to talk to Jesus and to listen to him in deeper and deeper ways. One thing that's important to understand, I tell my friend, is that Jesus taught us to seek 
first the kingdom of God because it is the most important reality that exists. And that everything would be given to us that we would truly need. What he means is not that we enter the kingdom of God again and again, but that we can begin practices or disciplines or exercises that will help us enter deeper and deeper into kingdom life. It takes practice and it takes our whole lives just like becoming a really good athlete or a good musician or a good physical therapist takes practice. And the thing is, we never reach perfection like Jesus. But there's a big difference between making progress towards becoming like Jesus and perfection. We can make progress towards becoming people like Jesus by engaging in these spiritual exercises, just like Jesus did. Jesus learned to obey. And his followers have done throughout the last 2,000 years. My friend says, okay, what are some spiritual exercises? I would answer, well, I've already mentioned a couple of spiritual exercises, like reading the Gospels and learning to pray. And I mentioned the importance of practicing. There's another important principle, though, to growing stronger in the kingdom life. And it's the same as growing stronger in any other area of life. It has to do with the intensity of our practice. We do these spiritual exercises to transform the kind of people we are. Just like athletes practice to transform the kind of athletes they are. Someone compared it to taking a shower. We take a shower to change ourselves from being dirty to being clean. But in order for the shower to work, you have to have a fairly intense stream of water. If you only had one drop of water every minute, the shower wouldn't transform you much from being dirty to being clean. Well, take reading the Gospels. If you only read a couple of verses a day, that's good, but it's not going to change you very much. But try reading a whole Gospel in one sitting. It only takes an hour or two to read Mark or John. That will change your life. That will change the kind of person you are. Change your heart, your inner being, the place where your thoughts are and your feelings and the kind of decisions you make. My friend says, yeah, that makes sense. It's like the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. He asks, are there other spiritual exercises? And I say, there are many kinds. But let me mention now just one other one. It's the discipline of solitude or silence. Jesus did this all the time. He always went off by himself to be quiet. This has always been an important spiritual exercise. But in this digital age, with our cell phones and our computers, we are constantly being bombarded by information. And unfortunately, those evil being, spiritual beings that I told you about, they use this to try to convince us that we can't trust God. When we take time to be quiet and alone for a while, 
And I, you know, at different stages of life, it's harder. You do what you can do. But you find that our thoughts go crazy, wandering all over the place. But we can use this practice to see how these evil spiritual beings are trying to influence our thoughts and feelings and the kind of decisions we make. And then in conjunction with reading the Bible, we can learn how to defeat these beings by letting Jesus influence our thoughts and feelings and decisions. Believe me, this war is real. These evil angels do not want us to pay attention to Jesus. Remember that writer, C.S. Lewis, I'd tell him, that I mentioned before? He wrote a short book based on his own practice of solitude and silence. His book is an imaginary, it's a, it's, it's a series of letters between a, uh, an older demon who is coaching a younger demon about how to, how to influence this young man that the younger demon has been assigned to. And his job is to keep him as far away from Jesus as possible, which means influencing his thoughts and feelings and decisions, right? It's an amazing book. It's called The Screwtape Letters. I highly recommend you read it. You could get it today. There's a lot of other spiritual exercises that we can learn, we can do to help us learn how to live without being controlled by things like legitimate anger that turns into hatred and contempt, or normal sexual desire that turns into treating other human beings like objects that we can use for our pleasure, or the ordinary and very good need for friendship and love that turns into a twisted need to be admired by other people. You know, Jesus focuses on the gritty guts of human ex experience, the stuff that, my friend, said makes this world such a bad place. He teaches us how to become people to get, that can learn how to set evil aside. Said, we don't do these things to be accepted by Jesus, we do them because we have been accepted. Remember, we talked about how when you acknowledge that Jesus is king and you commit to learning how to obey him, we receive the Holy Spirit. Well, in learning to obey Jesus, we need a ton of help. The Holy Spirit brings God's grace, God's love into our life. People who are living a kingdom life depend on God's grace like a jet fighter depends on rocket fuel or jet fuel. We burn it. We need it. We learn that by the Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus is the, is the strongest power in the universe. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he uses the Greek word paraclete. And this word paraclete has a wide range of meaning. He's described as our comforter, our advocate, our encourager, our helper, our strengthener, our counselor. And what's so good about him is that he's always with us as we're practicing 
learning to obey Jesus. And he's powerful. He's actually able to help change your heart and your will as you practice learning to obey Jesus. And he'll give you the ability, as you're practicing, to help other people practice to learn to obey Jesus. And when that happens, you're already beginning to learn how to reign in the kingdom of God with Jesus. My friend says, you know, this is not what I expected. I have to go to work. But can we continue this conversation later? And I say, of course, anytime. And I say that to any of you. If you want to talk about this, of course, anytime. God bless you.